aristocrats of the first century, as we would say, the upper crust, and they had a tremendous amount of power. Nicodemus, of course, wanted to spend some time with Jesus, and so he came to the Lord by night, and he came for the purpose of investigating Jesus more fully. Nicodemus said to Jesus, Rabbi or teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs or miracles which you're doing unless God is with him. Nicodemus recognized that there was something very special about Jesus. No doubt he had heard about the miracles of Jesus. It might have been the case that he had seen firsthand some of the miracles that Jesus had performed. But nonetheless, he attributed this great power to God. Nicodemus is in a learning phase, as we would say. And so he comes to Jesus and he is interested to learn more about the Lord Jesus. And I would say this, in our investigation process, as we begin ferreting through what the Bible has to say and looking more fully at Jesus, we've got to have some interest, don't we? And that interest has to also be accompanied by an investment of our time. Nicodemus allotted a period of time to sit down with Jesus and to talk to him more fully. And Jesus began his conversation with, with Nicodemus by saying to him, Most assuredly, or verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say to you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus here talking about the kingdom that he had been preaching about from the inception of his ministry, John the Baptist, who was the forerunner to the Christ, as you well know, foretold of the coming of the kingdom of God. They both heralded the very same message. They both said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom that Jesus talked about was a spiritual entity. It was an institution that was born and bred in the mind of God before time began. Daniel, the prophet of God, in Daniel chapter 2, foresaw the kingdom as an indestructible institution. He said it would stand forever in chapter 2, verse 44. Isaiah, the great prophet of God, saw the kingdom as an exalted mountain into which all nations would flow. And so Jesus here begins enlightening Nicodemus about this coming kingdom. And with regard to the new birth, Nicodemus wants to know, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus, of course, thinking about a physical birth, and Jesus wasn't talking about the, the physical realm, but rather the spiritual realm. And so Jesus said, again, assuredly, or verily, verily, I say to you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Down in verse 7, Jesus would say, Marvel not that I say to you, you must be born again. The new birth would obviously be imperative in becoming a part of the kingdom of God. And so in the course of their conversation, Jesus acknowledges that Nicodemus is a premier teacher among the Israelite people. 
As a matter of fact, he identifies him as the teacher of Israel in verse 10. I would take this to mean that Nicodemus was a very special teacher, somewhat like a Gamaliel of old, a very esteemed rabbi among the people. So if you drop down with me and look at verse 14, our lesson text today, Jesus now takes Nicodemus back to a time that he would have been familiar with, the children of Israel. And he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must also be lifted up. Now, the Lord Jesus here is going to use an illustration, and inherent in that illustration is a correlation. When Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, because many of the children of Israel had been bitten by fiery serpents, that became a type of the salvation that he would provide through his sacrificial death on Calvary. There are some principles in Numbers chapter 21. I want you to go back with me and look at this account. Now Nicodemus, again, he is an esteemed teacher among the Israelite people. He would have been very knowledgeable about the history of the Israelite nation. And so he would have known about this instance in the life of Moses and the children of Israel. In verse 4, we read about the children of Israel and their journeys. And the Bible says that as they journeyed from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. No doubt they became discouraged and despondent. And so the Bible tells us that the people spoke against God and against Moses. And imagine, if you can, listening to the children of Israel dishonor God when they said, Why have you brought us, brought us up out of Egypt? To die in the wilderness. For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes or detests this worthless bread. Now when I look at this instance and I think about the sin of Israel, the fact that they dishonored God, God had been very gracious and good to the children of Israel. He had delivered them out of Egyptian bondage. He had borne them, as He said to Moses in Exodus chapter 19, on eagles' wings and brought them unto Himself. He had provided for them. He had been very good and gracious to them. And now they begin to murmur and complain and demonstrate a lack of faith in God. And you know, that says something to us today about the danger of ingratitude. Sometimes we focus more on what we don't have than what we do have. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we forget about the gracious providence of a kind God and all of the good blessings that He has bestowed on us. And so in Numbers chapter 21, note if you would, in verse 6, the Bible says the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. So here you have, they dishonor the Lord, and now the Lord sends serpents among them, and they're dying before the Lord. And so they cry out to God for deliverance. And again, this takes us back to John chapter 3, where Jesus uses this illustration 
and it becomes a type of salvation. And so look, if you would, at verse 7. Therefore the people came to Moses, and they said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Now, I want you to see something here. There's some principles that are found in the Old Testament that are also present under the New Covenant. When we talk about God and how God, how God treats His people, there are distinct principles that have always been embedded in God's conduct with His people. And so with regard to their cry to, to Moses for deliverance, first and foremost, we read something about the marvelous grace of Almighty God. We sang this morning about God's grace and how God's grace reaches us. And so listen, if you would, to what is said in verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. Now let me ask you this question. Did the children of Israel deserve deliverance by Almighty God? Had they done something to have merited God's deliverance? Well, again, the answer is no, isn't it? But God, in His grace and kindness, in response to their cry, said, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to provide a means whereby you can be saved if you are bitten by a fiery serpent. And so God then gives very specific instructions to Moses to build this serpent of brass and to put it upon a pole. And note, if you would, what is said. Everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So we have God's marvelous, matchless grace, and then we have an introduction to God's law, don't we? Divine instructions. And what that says to me is, wherever God's grace goes, it is always accompanied by divine teaching. For example, back in Genesis chapter 6, when God recognized the sinfulness of man on earth. And you remember, the Bible says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, but God had said He was going to destroy man whom He had, whom, whom he had created. God then instructed Noah to build an ark of gopher wood, set forth the dimensions of that ark. And the Bible tells us, thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Hebrews chapter 11 says, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with godly fear. God told Noah what to do to save himself and his family from the flood. God now telling the children of Israel exactly what to do in order to enjoy deliverance from these fiery serpents. So we have God's grace coupled with God's divine law. And you remember in Titus chapter 2, Paul said the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to every man. Listen to him. Instructing us, teaching us. That's the idea. Wherever God's grace goes, always accompanied by divine teaching. 
But then there's another component. It's called faith. Listen again to what it said. It shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. Now, let me ask this question. What inherent medicinal properties resided in that serpent of brass? You know anything medicinal about a serpent of brass and somebody being bitten? And then looking at that serpent and medically speaking, there being a correlation between being sick and dying and bitten? Medically speaking, there's no correlation, is there? Except God said, when you look at this serpent of brass, what will happen? You'll live. That requires faith, doesn't it? But not just faith only. Imagine having been bitten by a serpent in the wilderness. And you're residing in your tent. You've been bitten, now you're in your tent. And you know Moses has this serpent of brass. And you understand that there are healing properties associated with this serpent of brass. That God has said that those who look at it will live. But you decide, you know what, I understand that that serpent of brass has power. God has promised to heal. So what I'm going to do, I'm just going to bow my head and pray the serpent's prayer and God will save me. You think that would have worked? Do you think they could have just prayed that God would save them without looking at the serpent of brass? Look at what it said. Drop down, look at verse 9. Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone. When he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So what do you have? You have faith coupled with what? Obedience. They go hand in hand. And so in this context, now Jesus had said to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... When Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, those who were bitten, when they complied with God's divine law, they enjoyed the benefits and blessings of His matchless grace. When they demonstrated faith and obedience, what happened? They were healed, weren't they? They were spared. They were delivered. Now, turn with me to John chapter 3. Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus now is talking about the cross and salvation. The lifting up of the bronze serpent in the wilderness became a type of salvation. And Jesus is saying that He, the Son of Man, must be lifted up. For what? For salvation. In other words, when Jesus was lifted up on Calvary's cross, that was in harmony with God's desire to save the human family. Now, why did God save the human family? Because He loves us. Why did God save the human family? Because He is a gracious, merciful, and kind God, isn't He? Now look, if you would, at the continuation of what Jesus said. He said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, 
that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. First and foremost, I think about the source of our salvation. That's God, isn't it? God is the one who has created a plan to redeem us. That plan is a result of His marvelous grace, is it not? Didn't Paul say, by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves? It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Have we done anything to merit salvation from sin? Absolutely not. Is there any way that we could put God in debt to us and say, you know what, God, you owe me? Of course not. But because God loves us and because He is motivated by love as as members of His creation, we can enjoy the benefits and blessings of His grace and kindness. So I think about the source of our salvation. Listen to what Jesus said, For God so loved the world. God loved the world. The scope of our salvation. Is God interested in all people? Yes, He is. Do you think God wants everyone to be saved? The Bible says God would have all men to be saved, come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2, 4. Peter said God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's interested in our salvation, isn't He? So we have a manifestation of His grace. Matter of fact, Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 talks about the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So you think about the grace and kindness of a loving God who was motivated to save us. And so when you read the New Testament, when you read the Old Testament, You're reading about a gracious God, a God who loves us immensely. And I think about the sacrifice for our salvation. It cost God something, didn't it? Jesus said, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That is, the only one of His kind. Jesus was unique. He is unique. Why? Because He is the divine Son of God. He is the eternal Word. And so when I think about the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15, when Paul said, thanks be to God for His indescribable gift, I think about Paul when he said, but God commends His own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You think about as a member of the human family, people who are lost and dying in sin, separated from God, the crown of God's creation. And yet He loved us enough, as Paul said, He spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. And then the cost to Jesus. I mean, it cost Jesus, didn't it? He said, as as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. When Jesus went to the cross and was crucified on Calvary, He died for us, didn't He? As Peter said, the just for the unjust. He was the just, we're the unjust. Jesus, as Peter said, bore our sins in His body on the cross. So without the grace of God, we'd be lost, wouldn't we? Well, what about divine law? Has God given us divine instructions? on what to do to become a child of God. 
You know, sometimes we talk about God's grace. With regard to salvation, we can think about it like this. There is God's part, there's man's part, isn't there? You know, sometimes I hear people say, you don't have to do anything to become a child of God. Really? On Pentecost Day, when those people were convicted of sin, do you remember they cried out to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Did Peter say, you know what, guys, you don't have to do a thing. No, you don't have to do one thing. No, he said, here's what you need to do. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now, do I have to have faith in what the Lord has said? Do I have to understand something about the Christ? Why, certainly I do. You know, Christianity is a religion that requires teaching, doesn't it? Jesus said it's written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. On Pentecost Day, those people already believed in the Lord. They knew who Jesus was. As a matter of fact, some of them had been guilty of putting Jesus to death. And so Jesus, in His conversation with Nicodemus, said, look, Nicodemus, for God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish. Now, the word believe in the New Testament, in the original, carries with it the idea of a trusting disposition. The acceptance or acknowledgement of information. But it embraces more than just that. It also carries with it the idea of being compliant, or as we would say, obedient. So think about God's scheme of redemption like this. God has demonstrated His grace by the sending of Christ. God has provided a means of redeeming those of us who belong to the human family. And just as Moses set forth God's law in the wilderness regarding salvation from those fiery serpents, God has set forth divine law how we might appropriate His grace. Did you know grace is in Christ? That's what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Grace is in Christ. Well, where is salvation? Salvation's in Christ, isn't it? 2 Timothy 2.10. So the question then, how do we get into Christ? Jesus told Nicodemus, didn't he? You know, sometimes people say, well, you know, in John 3, 16, I don't read one word about baptism. Well, why would you? He already talked about it in John 3, 3 and 5, verse 7. John 3, 16 is just as wet as John 3, 3, verse 5, verse 7, and a number of other verses. The means by which we appropriate the grace of God, we've got to obey the gospel, don't we? Now, listen to what Jesus said. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. The world was already under condemnation. Now think about this. If you haven't obeyed the gospel of Christ, you're under condemnation. Did you know that? You stand condemned before God. Just that plain. Just that simple. Because Paul wrote in, that, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now 
No condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Salvation is in Christ. Those who are in Christ escape condemnation, don't they? They escape the consequences of sin, the penalty of sin. Paul talked about that in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death. So when you go back to the Old Testament and you think about Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, what'd you have? You had grace, divine law, faith, and obedience. In the New Testament, to enjoy the benefits and blessings of salvation, what do you have? You have God's grace, don't you? When we obey the gospel, have we earned our salvation? Have we merited that? Absolutely not. But rather we have simply complied with the teaching set forth by the Lord Jesus, haven't we? Didn't Jesus say, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved? Is that not divine law? Is there not a promise to those who in faith respond to the gospel that they'll enjoy salvation? Sure there is. Now Jesus said, listen to him. He said, this is condemnation. Light has come into the world. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The problem with some is they love sin. And they love living in sin. And they're not willing to come to the light, as Jesus said, that they might enjoy that they might enjoy redemption, that they might enjoy forgiveness of sins. But look at verse 21, if you would. He who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done by God. So in John chapter 3, you have an Old Testament illustration with a New Testament correlation. And the correlation is, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the Son of Man was lifted up for whom? For us. Why? so that we might enjoy the benefits and blessings of redemption. So you think about those who come to Christ. What are the benefits of coming to Jesus? We enjoy, his, we enjoy the benefits of His grace, don't we? Can you be saved without God's grace? Absolutely not. You know, Paul in Ephesians 2 said, God who is rich in mercy for the great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has made us alive together with Christ by grace. Are you saved? We've been blessed. We enjoy His grace. And because of His grace, He has told us, okay, here's how you tap into the benefits of that grace. When you obey the gospel of Christ, you can leave here today, number one, forgiven. I'm talking about pardon from every single sin. Not some sins, not some big sins, not some little sins, but every sin. As the Hebrew writer said, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. Whatever is in your past, when you obey the gospel, here's what God says, it's in the past. You don't have to bear it, you don't have to look at it, it's over. And then you can be at peace with God. Paul said, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Isaiah said, the wicked are like the troubled sea. They don't have any peace. But in Christ, there is peace. Look, you can go to bed tonight and you can know that you're at peace with God, that you enjoy the peace that passes all understanding. Let me tell you one third benefit very quickly. When you obey the gospel of Christ, you have the promise of life eternal. That's not pie in the sky, hope so, think so, maybe so. No, that is a 
reality. It is assurance. We sing the song, Blessed Assurance. When you become a child, listen to what John said. This is a promise that He's promised us, even life eternal. That's a promise. You can take it to the bank. It's that solid. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you to come to Christ. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, look, why not do that today? If you're here today and your life's not what it ought to be and you recognize that you need the benefits and blessings of God's grace, obey the gospel. Put the Lord on in baptism. Enjoy forgiveness. Enjoy pardon and peace and the promises of God. If you're here today and maybe you're not what you ought to be as a child of God and you need the prayers of the church, we'd encourage you to come as we stand and sing.